Tonight is anniversary night. The format of tonight's meeting will be a main speaker who will speak for 30 minutes, followed by our information break and the anniversary celebrants. Our main speaker tonight is Devin. Good evening, everybody. My name is Devin. I am a recovered alcoholic. Um, it's great to be here. Uh, first off, I will just start by saying I do have a sobriety date, which is August 28th of 2011. Um, I have a home group, which is called No Serenity Till Brooklyn, and there's a good chunk of people that are either regularly at that meeting or have been through that meeting a bunch um, in this room. And we owe a lot of our group structure to this group, so I'm really grateful. Um, to everything that this group has done for so long because it allowed an offshoot to happen when one of your members in Brooklyn had some kids and couldn't make it here anymore and started a wonderful group in Brooklyn that's been able to allow me to be home for about nine years now. And, um, and most importantly, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what I'll start off by saying is, um, if you're new here, the highest you ever get in AA is sober and member. That's it. There's no hierarchy here. Uh, we, we serve and we do things, and there's a lot of people that do a lot of service for this group. Um, so thanks for my timekeeper and my, my speaker host and all of you for getting water and all this stuff. It's amazing. Um, but that doesn't make us any more important than anybody else in this room. And that, to me, is an amazing thing. I was on the phone with a guy earlier, and we were talking about um, that that's like the great equalizer, that in AA, you know, every member has a vote, and every vote is, and every voice is just as important as everybody else. Um, so I don't know where this is going to go. There was a, a period of time a bunch of years ago where I realized that... Um, I just can't try to think about what I'm going to say. I just kind of pray and I come up here and whatever happens, happens. So we'll see where this goes today. Um, I do want to talk about that sobriety date of August 20th, 2011. And, um, and what I can tell you about that day is that's not the day I quit drinking. Uh, I tried to quit drinking numerous times along the course of my life. And every time I, I said I'm going to quit drinking or try to change my relationship to alcohol, uh, I found myself unsuccessful to do that. And... Um, you know, and I found out that's really the only thing that really makes me alcoholic is my relationship to alcohol. And here's a little of what that looked like at, at 11 or 12. I was like 12, 13 when I had my first drink. Um, I drank to get drunk. We grabbed a bottle of gin. We drank as much as we could, as fast as we could, because that's what we thought you're supposed to do. And at that moment in time was the first time in my life that I really realized how uncomfortable I had been my whole life. Um, I didn't realize because I had just been living so I came to, and I'm living in the world, and I just assume how I feel is what everybody feels, and, and that our book uses the language ease and comfort, and I like that. For the first time in my life, I was able to sit on the couch and make fun of the other kids. I didn't care what you thought about me. I wasn't, it was like all this, this noise in my brain kind of went away, and I just got a chance to feel comfortable being me. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I think that's all I've ever really been looking for in this world, is I just want to feel okay. I just want to feel okay. I want to be able to go out in the world and just be okay. And alcohol really did that early on. And I don't think it's much of a stretch to draw the line from this is giving me an effect that isn't just getting me drunk. I'm not just like bumping into walls and slurring my speech. Like I really felt in my heart like there was a change in me. 
So I have a mind that latches on to anything that I think is good, and that seems like a good experience. So it's not a far jump for me to think that I'm going to start wanting to do this as often as possible. Um, and eventually what happened was there became a time in my life where I said I'd like to not drink, and I found that I drank against my will. And that was a real big marker as I got towards the end of this of, of maybe I really have a problem here. Um, but there's this other part of alcoholism that's super important, which is this idea that we have a physical allergy to alcohol. And, and what does that look like, and do I have stories with that? The first time I can ever really see craving show up in my life was when I was about 16 years old. My sister was two years older than I was. She went to a university. I'm from the Midwest, so she was out in the middle of a cornfield in Iowa at a Big Ten university out there. And she knew that I probably wanted to drink, and I was going to stay the Friday night or whatever in the dorms with her. And, and she took me to a dorm room with some guys, and they had a lot of alcohol. And all I remember is about 10 minutes. And I, I know that I drank so much in 10 minutes that all I can remember is being patted on the back of my neck as I threw up all of that for the next bunch of hours in a blackout. And the next morning when I tried to drink water, I was literally puking up stomach acid. You know? And I don't, I don't know, if, I mean, it's kind of gross, but like if you drink like I drink, that's a normal experience where you don't have anything left to go, so all you're doing is dry heaving in the morning because you're withdrawing because you drank yourself to a level where you've actually overrode your survival instincts. Because that's the kind of alcoholism, that's how alcoholism looks for me. Once it's in my body, all of the stuff that tells me this is bad, this is poison, stop doing this. That's my body reacting, trying to say you're, you're killing yourself, you need to stop. Like all that gets overridden. Because I have this other part of me that once alcohol enters my system, something happens. And I can't control it. And that doesn't have to happen every time. The doctor's opinion is really clear. It says if this has ever happened to you, ever, that you're on the other side of the invisible line, of, you've crossed into abnormal drinking. I can paint a picture uh, today of what some normal drinking might look like. I, I got married, I guess, like four, four years and change ago now. But we've been together over ten years. And... Um, which story do I tell? I mean, there's so many. She ordered a six-pack for delivery in the pandemic, early October. She was excited about pumpkin ale season. Oh, Oktoberfest. She got something. I went to put it in the fridge, and she looked at me like I was crazy. She goes, why are you putting that in the fridge? And I was like, well, you're going to want these cold, right? And she goes, oh, I'll just grab one and chill it out when I want it. <laughs> that six-pack lasted for over three weeks on the floor of our kitchen. I'm, I'm, and, I'm, and it's like, I've watched her forget drinks in the other room. For, she starts drinking wine, forget she's drinking wine. I don't know how you do that. That's like, if that's normal relationship to alcohol, I am so far from that. I have never drank like that once. I tell you that even today, walking around, like, I'm catching the sidelines. I know where the alcohol is being served. I see what people are drinking. I see how fast they're, like, I just, it's, I notice those things. So... You know, the, the mundane details of my story are pretty simple. What I can tell you is that AA found me. Uh, at 18 years old, I, you know, my story is not confined just to alcohol, um, but it doesn't matter all the other stuff that was going on. All that happened was at 18, my family got wind of some other stuff that scared, scared them, and I ended up getting thrown in one of those treatment centers. And in that treatment center, a couple of days a week, y'all showed up. <clears throat> so my first introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous was through the lens of service. And I'm a big proponent that, you know, we have, if you ever see like the circle and triangle on a coin, if you're new and you get like a newcomer chip and you look and it says recovery, unity, and service, that service part on there is, you know, there's jobs to do here in AA. 
you know, there's things to do in order to give back. And one of those service commitments that people can start doing is beyond just the home group. You know, in the beginning, get involved in a group. But at some point, there's a lot of stuff to do outside of your home group. And one of those things could be taking a message into an institution where people are locked down. And, and AA members were doing that in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. And that's where I, that's where I first became acquainted with Alcoholics Anonymous. It was some, some guys and some ladies that took time out of their lives to come and sit in a youth rehab facility with a bunch of kids that were locked down and let us know about this wonderful program and try to offer us that there, you know, if you are open to it, there's a new way of life available to you. But at 18 years old, I don't know about any of you, I didn't have a problem other than the fact that I was locked out and couldn't drink in a rehab. That was the problem as I saw it. You know, what it felt like to me was my family was trying to restrict access to the one thing that has ever allowed me to feel okay in this world. It felt like they're attacking me. This isn't love. This is punishment. And, um, and so I, I got out of this 90-day period of forced abstinence. I don't know if any of you have ever had forced abstinence. What I, what I call forced abstinence is when someone else tells you you have to get sober. And so I comply with those conditions until you get out of the picture. And getting out of the picture meant I'm in Boston now going to this college. And the family has just left after dropping me off. And that first night I took a drink. And for the next six years I barely drew a sober breath. You know, I ended up selling a bunch of drugs in the middle of that. You know, I became a criminal. I thought this is how I can finance my life because if I want to be living this way, I need to be able to finance that. And having a drawer full of cash that replenished itself every day seemed like a decent plan. Um, you know, I went to a music school. A bunch of people wanted to party. It was like I have a built-in network of people. This is easy. Um, and there's a lot of drama in that. All I know is that I end up in New York City, and it was like, for that moment in my life, was, okay, I gotta, I gotta show up now. I gotta show up and start being an adult and live here. You know, I've studied this craft, and now I actually gotta come in and actually make a living at this. And, and the problem was, I'm alcoholic, and I don't really understand alcoholism, and I, and I kept drinking myself into these blackouts, and, you know, I, I, I was not in a good way, and, and eventually... Eventually, every morning, for a good chunk of time, I woke up, and the question in my mind was, is today the day I'm going to take my own life? Because that's where it goes. I mean, for me, alcoholism is not a rosy picture. It wasn't that fun. It was me by myself, isolated. The only people I was with were other people that were probably just as you know, isolated, and we just did this together. And it was no real friendship. There was no real love. Like, it was just empty relationships with other people that allowed me to rationalize how I was living because I could look at them and say, okay, if this is how they're doing it, I'm, we're, we're good. And, um, and I can tell you that, that that brought me to that place of waking up every morning, and our book talks about it, waking up with terror, frustration, bewilderment, and despair. And we also have that place in our literature which they call the jumping off place, and I got there. And I hope everyone in this room has felt that. And what the jumping off place is, is that moment where you can't imagine living life one more day drinking, but you also can't imagine living life sober. And that's where I was when I finally think that I, I got moved to look up a meeting and actually come on my own. I will say in the middle of this six-year kind of bender that I was on, um, there was one happy sober person that I came across. Probably more than one, but one that I knew was happy and sober. And I don't know if you meet those happy, sober people. I mean, I think there's a lot of happy, sober people in this room. If you're not happy and sober right now, I grab one of us that is happy and sober. We want to get you happy and sober, not just sober. Um, <laughs> it's much better to be sober and enjoy your life than to be sober and miserable. I'll tell you that much. But I, there was this guy named Will. He was from Hawaii. I thought that's why he was so happy. Um, 
I mean, he grew up on a cacao farm. He literally just won like a gold medal for like the standard of excellence in like a global chocolate competition. I mean, this guy is this incredible human being, um, incredible musician. But he's one of those people that when I first saw him, like he would look people in the eye and he would really zone in on them. And you could tell that he, he made you feel like you were important. And when I saw someone doing that, I could, okay, what's his angle? What is he trying to get here? You know, and, and I got to meet this man and spend some time with him, play some music with him. And, and I got to see that he was a genuinely loving person. He actually cared for the well-being of other people. And, and he, was, he wasn't playing a game here. He wasn't trying to get something. He just was trying to be a loving and, and caring person in the world. And, <clears throat> and I knew he used to party and didn't anymore. And um, one day I called him. And I, you know, you know, when you're in the middle of like a run, who knows, I whined about who knows what for three, five minutes, and then it got quiet on the other end of the phone. And all I heard this man say softly on the phone was, hey man, I go to AA and it works for me. And I want to tell you what he didn't do. He didn't invite me to a meeting. He didn't talk to me about a big book or 12 steps. But to this day, he lived this program in front of my face as one of the greatest living demonstrations of what Alcoholics Anonymous is. He wasn't interested in talking to me about what AA was. He showed me through how he lived in the world. And what I've been able to understand a little bit about AA is that's really what this is about. This is about change. This is about if I keep living the way I'm living, I will kill myself, whether it's by my own hand or by some drunken escapade where I fall in front of a subway or end up you know, on the Palisades somewhere. Like, who knows? All kinds of things happen to alcoholics that are gruesome and horrible deaths. And the, the worst one, I think, is for 60 years, we hang out there, you know, walking on our knees and chewing our tongues off, asking people for money. I mean, when we walk down in the city and we see our brothers and sisters that are asking for help, like, that's me. That's me. You know, but for the grace, there go I. That's, that's what we're talking about. Like, that's late-stage alcoholism, you know. And sometimes today I get upset because I'm in my world and someone comes up to me and, and it's clear that they're like an alcoholic or they might be a drug addict, but it's like I see me and them and they're asking me for money and I got nothing and I, I don't like that I feel powerless in that moment. I don't like that. Because um, that's, that's, that's me right there. Um, I came to AA on my own for the first time early June or like late May of 2011. As I said, my sobriety date was August 28th of 2011. Uh, what happened in those three months was pretty profound. I came to AA, and, and if you're new, and especially in this group, I mean, you, I don't think you can come, unless you come like 15 minutes late and leave 15 minutes early, I don't think you can come here and not meet people, right? I came to a meeting, it was in Greenpoint, I raised my hand, or I got called on because it was a round robin, I said I was new, and, and people did what AA members do, they showed up, <clears throat> they invited me to other meetings, they gave me their phone numbers, they said, call me. You know, I'm going to get a coffee and go to this meeting over here tomorrow night. If you want to meet, we can chat beforehand. And, and we, I got invited into the fellowship. And I'll tell you, the, the unity part of that triangle, that's the fellowship, right? Like, I need to be a member of AA. I need to have a home group. I need to be planted in this fellowship. I can't lone ranger this thing. Like, I, I want to think that I can, but I can't. I need people. Um, and I got invited into the fellowship, but I still didn't understand my problem. And so what happened for about three months is people said things like, just don't pick up the first drink and you won't get drunk. True. But they didn't explain to me how I couldn't pick up the first drink. And I kept drinking. And I started going to a meeting or more every single day and finding myself in a blackout every single night. 
And I started to wonder what was wrong with me. Because I would hear certain people and they'd be like, I'm 22 days sober and since I quit alcohol, life's great. And I was like, dude, when I'm sober, I'm miserable. Like, I get worse. I don't get better. This isn't a drinking problem. I, I, like, I don't know what's going on. But when I'm sober, that's when I feel the most insane. That's when I feel the most pain in my heart and in my spirit. I don't know how to live in this world. And now you're telling me to consider living like that for forever? That just sounds terrible. Um, it became apparently clear, or abundantly clear to me that the best I do is I drink. That's what I'm going to do. I drink. People say I'm in the no matter what club. No matter what, I don't pick up. Well, guess what? My experience, no matter what, I pick up. Everything I ever tried to do to change my relationship to alcohol utterly failed. On August 28th of 2011, I ended up at a meeting and the words that came out of my mouth, taking a burning desire, which felt like I was listening to somebody else share, was I'm screwed. You could, it was a little more colorful than that, but I'm screwed and I don't know what to do. But if I'm not surrounded by you people or at another one of these meetings, I will be drunk and high later. It's going to happen. It's been happening every single night. And, um, and in that little share, you know, well, something else, so they, you know, at this meeting, we'll have a secretary's break and then we'll have a bunch of celebrants and it's going to be a big party. But that was like the end of that meeting. So they read whatever and we stood up to pray. And we said that serenity prayer that we opened this meeting with. And I got that little tingle down my spine feeling saying a prayer. Now, I don't come from a religious family. I have zero religious education. The only religious education I have today is in all the, the like, seeking and reading of outside stuff that I've done since coming to AA. That's part of our 11th step suggests, like, hey, you know, there's a lot of people that have been really deeply thinking <laughs> about spirituality and, and doing this out of just being, having a genuine interest in, in that. Maybe you should go read some other stuff and see what resonates with you. And so I've learned some stories and, you know, I, I have some heroes that come from all different walks of life. But I didn't have any kind of conception of a God, any kind of, I, I didn't want to pray. I didn't, that all just was like, whatever. I just can't stop getting loaded every day and I just need to get sober here I'm going to kill myself and but when I got that little chill going down my spine the, the message that I got <clears throat> was this is for you and I hope you felt that and however that feels to you I hope that when you come to AA and you get to see some of what happens that at some point you might be able to identify rather than compare you know the minutia of my story doesn't matter but if you have a relationship to alcohol that looks like mine then you're probably alcoholic is what our literature says and, and what happened to me the day that I was able to kind of own, I mean, it was really our first step on, in our literature says when we concede to ourselves that we're alcoholic, that's the first step. If you come here and you say you're an alcoholic, I'll believe you. But do you believe you? To me, that's what happened that day was I got to understand. It was like I heard a piece of truth about Devin. The best Devin does is Devin drinks. That's the best I'll ever do. But because I've been coming to a lot of meetings in that three-month window, I, st I saw y'all. And I heard stories, and I mean, you'll see these people, I mean, we're, there are a lot of well-dressed people here, right? I guarantee you every single person in this room has a story that will make your jaw drop when you get to hear it. Some of the experiences that we've lived through are just insane. And, um, and I heard those stories, and I started to think, if, if that person could get sober, maybe I could get sober. If this could work for someone like that, maybe it could work for me. And that's really the opening of a second-step experience. Am I willing to believe that there might be something in this world that might be able to fix my mind that is so warped that even when I know that taking a drink is a bad idea, the best thing I can think is to take a drink. 
And that's the insanity of, our, of alcoholism is I will convince myself that sober, that a drink is a good idea. And um, so I'd come to believe that if nothing else, AA seemed to be bigger than me. And coming to these meetings and being a part of this thing was definitely, I mean, I realized you guys were doing this whether I showed up or not. So clearly this was bigger than me. And, um, and when I got that little chill down my spine, I mean, that to me was the first third step decision I think I ever made. I said, oh, whatever these people tell me to do, I'm just going to do it. Like, I'm not going to try to figure out AA. I'm just going to try to do AA. I'm going to ask for some help, and I'm going to actually try to just do what is being suggested of me. Um, so I feel like that day that is my sobriety day was the day I got surrendered. You know, I didn't know I was looking for God, but God came in and just poked me in my heart and said, hey, I'm here. You know, there's love here. If you want to accept this love, you can do that. If you want to go somewhere else, you can do that. But there is some unconditional love here. And this is a place for you. And what I can tell you, um, I only have 10 minutes to try to talk about 12 and a half years. That's not really a good amount of time there. Um, this is, like, through all that, right? Like, that. okay, darkness, not fun. We're not having a good time. Like, is a necessity of me coming into this thing and fighting tooth and nail sometimes to accept this program I have been given these amazing tools that have literally allowed me to have a life that I cannot even describe to you. Um, when you get into an inventory, there's a lot of people that are stuck right in the fourth step. You know, I mean, how many times you hear, I'm just, I can't get, you know, it's like, well, no, you're just not doing it. Like, if you sit down and actually write the inventory, it's not going to take you more than a couple hours. It, like, it won't. And your first inventory, it's just, you got to learn how to write inventory. So, like, let's just get it going, you know. You're learning a tool. You're learning how to stop blaming everybody else for how you feel. That's really been my thing. It's like, you know, I, I don't get to blame you for my reaction of fear. I have to look at why am I afraid. I have to look at what do I want to get from all these people that they're not giving me that's causing me to resent them. You know, what kind of desires and motives have I put on everybody else in the world? And now I think it's unfair. You know, we get to the self-pity mode. But that's just me deciding that this shouldn't be happening to me. It's when I started to understand that I have to take accountability for my reactions to the world. I have to look at how I conduct myself. I started to get free. You know, I'm an arrogant person by nature. I'm an indignant person by nature. I have a lot of pride. I feel like I'm smarter than most people. You know, I know what I can do well. And when people can't do what I do well, I get upset at them. You know, like I have all this stuff that's still running around. But today, because I've been practicing with this, this idea of self-examination for a while, in the moment I'm able to watch it and kind of start laughing at my own mind and realize that like my mind is not who I am. There's this thing up here that's just going. And sometimes I can, I get up in it and I'm going with it. And that's when I usually get into some times where I need to owe some apologies and make some amends. But if I'm able to kind of look at it and go, wow, my mind's just doing that crazy stuff it does where I think I'm better than people. And, and the truth is I'm not. <laughs> you know, and I can start to get back to reality. It's like an amazing thing. It's really a truly amazing thing to be able to just let somebody see you. I mean, that's really what we're doing in the beginning. A fourth and a fifth step in the beginning, it's like you just got to let somebody see all of you. And again, when you're doing that with another drunk, for me, that's easier. And, and every fifth step I've ever shared with other people, I get to hear stuff from them. They relate back to me some of their life. And I, before I hear someone reading me inventory, I'm relating stuff to them. Like, 
It's a two-way street. I want you to, you know, if I'm going to show you how to write inventory, I'm going to read you some inventory I wrote so that you see how I'm doing it and you can see that, like, I'm not just telling you to do something I'm not doing. Like, I need this. This is a life-saving practice for me. Four of our, like, a third of our program is dedicated to, in some way, self-examination with four, five, ten, and eleven. And then the outgrowth of that inventory is, you know, six, seven, eight, and nine. So, like, this whole thing is like, hey, I got to look at me. That's what I've been trying to do this whole life is I've been trying to blame the world and the circumstances of everything going on for how I feel and I have to take some ownership. And my buddy Mike and I have had a standing weekly call on Mondays um, for say, since last, like two Novembers ago. So it's, it's a little while now. <clears throat> and one of the things he said to me, he goes, you know, it's our responsibility to be awake and aware of how we're living in the world, the actions we're taking and the implications and the way that impacts the people about us. And he'll ask me questions like, based on how you're treating the world, is it apparent that, the, that this power that we call God is alive in your heart? And he challenges me with things like, how are you doing today? What are you unwilling to let go of today in order to develop a deeper relationship with your God? You know, what I found out in the inventory process as I moved into six and seven, um, and the longer you're here, and I think all of us people with, you know, some double-digit sobriety or even like, uh, you know, even any, you could have, see this, any amount of sobriety really. But you start to see that, that six and seven is like this forever journey. Because every day I have to get up and ask myself, am I really willing to have God remove these defects? And I don't know about y'all, but I have pretty much what feels like the same defects from the beginning. They're, it's like the volume's getting turned down. But they're still there. It's, I don't think we get new defects much. It's like, it's been there for a while. I'm waking up to it. And, and my job is to ask God to, to change me. And, and to me, it goes back to like, if I could have changed me, I would have changed me a long time ago. I don't know about y'all, but if I could have just lived a joyful life, I would have done that. If I could have gone out and lived and achieved and done everything that my, my, my biggest dreams that I wanted to accomplish, I would have done that. And that's not in the material world as much as the... the the human world. You know, I, would have, I was telling you I'm a good guy, and when I got into that conduct portion of our inventory and I looked at my relationships over the years, I mean, I saw that I didn't really see women as people. It was not, that's not an upper. That's not a fun time. It's like, wow, I'm not okay with that. You know, and I'm really grateful that as I got through this stuff, I had people just ask me simple questions. When I saw things and, they, and I read them to them, they would go, is that objectionable to you? I never have once had somebody say, that's wrong. I've had people ask me, well, how does that work for you? Is that objectionable to you? Would you consider asking God to maybe start changing you if you feel like this is a problem? It seems like you might be hurting some people through this behavior. Our book suggests that if we're hurting others, we're probably going to drink. Do you think that they're, they're lying to you? Or do you think that that's one of those lines that we can take to the bank? And so it's been put to me, like my job here is I have to be awake and present and I, I, and I really need to figure out how to be connected to this power. Because, again, I go back. The best I do is I drink. And I really don't want to take a drink again. I know where that goes. The amazing part about AA and this amend stuff is we actually get to go and pay the money back. I know that doesn't sound good. And it's not fun. Um, I pay my bills, y'all. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I play music for a living in New York City as a freelancer. And I pay taxes and I pay my bills, I have some credit debt, that's okay, I pay all of them, you know, my credit score is fine, I pay them on time, but like sometimes it's a little lean. But like, I have an amazing sense of 
I don't know. I guess it is pride, but not the kind of pride that kills me in the fact that like, I've been able to look the world in the eye here and try my best to, to like, pay back everything I owed and to be here and know that, like, I mean, sometimes I'm irresponsible with my money. I mean, the, the prayers now are like, God, is it possible that this is your money and maybe my job is to be a good steward of your money and maybe I'm not doing such a good job. Would you show me how you'd have me spend your money? I don't like that prayer. <laughs> don't like that prayer. I also don't like, you know, God, if the music isn't what you need, to me, be, need me to be doing, take it. You know, um, if this marriage is the wrong lady, take it. If I don't need to be in New York City and you need me somewhere else, well, thanks for allowing me to have 13 years here. But if you need me to go somewhere to do something for you, I'm willing to go. To me, there's a, that's the depth of what our seventh step is really, you know, the good and the bad doesn't look like just changed all the bad stuff. It's like, what do I think is good in my life? And I've got an ego that seems to want to attack me through what I think are good motives. You know, I think I'm going out in the world to do the right thing, and, but that's where sometimes I stop looking, and that's where I think I can get in trouble. And so I only have a minute and a half, and I have too many stories of sponsorship to tell but you might be asking yourself, like, why would I do all this stuff? And I was talking to a guy last night. And I, I met this guy a couple weeks ago. And he was on fire. And then he ended up in a detox. He had almost two years sober. And he, I, and he talked to me. And I said, what happened? And he goes, I don't know, man. I just got hit with that obsession. And I was on autopilot. And I was crying. And I still couldn't. I, I just, he goes, where was God for me? And he was having that moment. And, and what I could relate to him, and I'll try to relate it to you in this last minute, is, you know, all the darkness of my life comes to, to fruition, and I get to understand why that happened when I'm sitting across the table from another alcoholic, and I can look you dead in the eye, and I can say, if you don't want to ever have, take a drink again, you don't have to. And over the years of trying to help other alcoholics, all those things that I was ashamed of, that I never wanted anybody to know about... They've shown up through the experiences of other people, and I've been able to understand why those things happened to me and why I went through them. And it's through the lens of helping others and this idea that we have called sponsorship. Like, this is what AA is. It's one drunk helping another drunk. And all of the stuff that you don't understand in your life gets sorted out there. And to me, sitting across the table with y'all, answering these phone calls has given me a sense of purpose that trumps all the other career stuff that I get to do. You know, and, and I have a lot more to say, but I want to respect that I get 30 minutes. But what I can say is, you know, I get to travel all over the world today. I get to do this thing that was a fairy tale. And everything besides a loving family that I've gotten in my life has been because of Alcoholics Anonymous. This love of this God I don't understand in this amazing program. And so I thank you for my life and I thank you for my sobriety.